Today on the Gary Anderson F1 show, we're going to be talking about suspension. Of course, a very important bit of the Formula One car, any racing car, it is after all the bit that attaches the car to the wheels. So uh, you can't you can't avoid it. While it's a bit inconvenient aerodynamically, it's an important part of the car. I'm Ed Stewart, and joining me as always is Gary Anderson, and we'll crack straight on with our opening question for this uh, podcast, which of course is unrelated to the to the main topic. And you, you can send in your opening questions to uh, to us via Twitter, either at, at at We Are the Race, or you can send them to me at Ed F1, or to Gary himself on at Gary Anderson F1. So this question, Gary, comes from Mike Duran, and he'd he'd like you to 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 admit to something here, which is what's been your biggest error when designing a car? You probably got quite a few to think through, I imagine. <laughs> I never made a mistake, Ed. What are you saying? Um, I suppose the one that niggles me most uh, was um, our nineteen ninety three season. Um, we we got the Brian Hart engine, the cars, you know, we went to a narrower track car and we sort of, I suppose our, our philosophy was to, um, going from the Yamaha engine in 1992, which was, you know, very long to the Brian Hart's V10, which was quite short. We took the opportunity to, um, shorten the wheelbase of the car to keep the aspect ratio of the car the same. Um, and really truthfully, it took us up to, I think the Estoril, Portuguese Grand Prix, the Estoril, before we sort of got on top of what was going on. The car was, you know, could be quick on a lap, but it just didn't look after the tyres. And, and really, you know, the wheelbase was a bit too short. Um, the car was was eating the rear tyres up. The weight distribution wasn't as good as what it should have been. Uh, we never really put enough, enough um, emphasis into the weight distribution on the cars in those days. And um, we decided after one of the races, I forget where it was, that we would lengthen the wheelbase. So over the weekend, we machined this um, 15 centimetre, or back in those days it was inches, six inches long spacer between the engine and the gearbox, um, lengthened the floor, you know, cut and shut stuff. I remember doing the, the engine cover myself and, you know, cutting it and joining it all back together again. Um, and uh, from there, the car became a completely different beast just in the fact that it was more consistent, it didn't eat up the rear tyres, um, and it just changed the weight distribution, moved, you know, moved weight to the front of the car and so on and so forth. So um, I suppose that was a, a blatant error that we made in the design of the car um, at that point in time for for well, logical reasons, but unfortunately it didn't work out for us and it took us too long to react to it. Yeah, and I guess and you picked up uh, double points finish at Suzuka, first points of the uh, of the year. Famously punchy race for for Eddie Irvin. <laughs> after. <laughs> More, but yeah, punchy. Yeah, good good stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, Eddie was very good around Suzuka. He knew the way around Suzuka. Watching him around through turn one on and turn two on his uh, on the first lap of the race was a, an experience. Um, I I wasn't sure he'd come out of there. Was still four wheels on the ground, but he did, and uh, you know. It was a great race, and, and you know he, he did a great job. And, and Rubens got a bit of a shock, but it was it was down to Eddie with the um, with the Suzuka knowledge to really pull pull it out there. Yeah, we saw that throughout his F1 career. He always uh, performed very well there. Well, let's move on to our our main event, uh, looking at suspension. But uh, but first, in general terms, obviously people always talk about aerodynamics as the dominant performance factor in Formula One. Obviously, engines became a big talking point at the start of the hybrid era that's perhaps faded a little bit now back towards aer- aerodynamics so would you say aero is still the dominant factor i think aero is the dominant factor for for actual out and out performance um you know it's the difference in in making a good car um or a bad car 
a fast car or a slow car, but suspension will always be um, a very important part of it. It can let you down. It can cause you grief. But it, you know, it, it, it in itself won't go out and win your races, but it can definitely make things more difficult on the way if you don't have a decent um, suspension package on the cars. Because you know, whenever you take all your aerodynamic stuff, you know, all those forces are on the are on the chassis of the car, and the suspension is between you and that black bit of rubber that sits on the ground. So the stuff that there that's there that's moving around. Um, for example, if you just done away with suspension and just made the cars rigid, solid. Uh, I mean, there would be horrible devices. So the suspension plays a big part in the the happy medium of getting all that aerodynamic load into this black bit of rubber and and being kind to it and trying to be as consistent and sympathetic as possible, but still, you know, putting the forces into it and the the difference in the forces, the weight distribution, the transfer of weight, the transfer of aerodynamic loads through the suspension is, is critical. Perhaps we should bring back some of the early Grand Prix car suspensions, the sort of leaf spring style ones and the uh, (laughs) closer to rigid one. They'd be fun to work with. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when we go back to the ground effect days, which I, you know, worked on a bit, I mean, those cars were creating bucket loads of downforce and it suddenly headed to the fact of, you know, longer side pods, get the side pod as long as possible, the maximum floor area underneath the car. Um, and you get more downforce out of it. And then, the you know, the throat of the underfloor moved further and further forward so the cars didn't need front wings on them. And um, you, you had so you had a, a thing that was just needed to be solid at the front because you couldn't allow it to move near the ground because um, you know, they were ground effect cars, so the effect on the ground by the by the varying ride height was dramatic. Um, and I remember the Ligier with Jacques, Jacques Lafitte in it going past the pits in Monza and... Coney, everybody used Coney shock absorbers, or more or less everybody used Coney shock absorbers at that time. And they came out with this Coney B8X, which was a massive amount of rebound on it. So basically, it was a, as the damper would compress with aerodynamic loads, um, the, it, the car wouldn't rise back up again. So it tried to trap the car into the ground. And you were using massively stiff springs. These B8X dampers on it with lots and lots of rebound on it. And he was going past the pits. And the car was just bouncing on the tires. And, you know, you could watch the car, the front of the car, the tires coming off the ground probably, you know, five to ten centimetres, just as the, because the thing will always give up aerodynamically. And if the suspension doesn't dampen out all that movement, then the tire just gives up and the whole front of the car was jumping up and down. So, you know, we talk, call it, we talk about porpoising and we see it on some F1 cars at some points in time. I think the Ferrari was the last one we saw a few years ago with Massa. But this was porpoising to, to a degree where you thought, any minute that thing could fly over backwards, you know, and it was doing 200 mile an hour, it's not, wouldn't have been a good place to be standing. So understanding of the aerodynamic loads and the suspension to cut to complement each other is very important. Well, before we get into detail of various suspension components and how different aspects of it can affect the performance, it's probably worth just really going into the first principles of what the suspension's doing. Um, so, so what is the suspension on a Grand Prix car there to to achieve and what are the various parameters that you're, you're considering for just general characteristics and what areas can it have an impact on that perhaps aren't as obvious as they as, as, as some of the others well the, the big thing you're trying to do as best possible and i don't think all formula one teams do because there are a lot of compromises made for uh, with suspension to suit aerodynamics but the main thing you're trying to do is work work with the tire the tire has a certain stiffness now, we see a lot of complaints, or we hear a lot of complaints from the teams about Pirelli's high tyre pressures. 
Um, the reason they're, they're going to high tire pressures is to stop the tire compressing quite as much because, you know, the, the air pressure in the tire, for example, one PSI in a, in a tire, so you go up from 20 to 21 PSI, would be about equivalent to a 50-pound vertical rate stiffness change. So the, the tire gets stiffer by about 50 pounds. Um, so you've got you've got that change in the stiffness of the tire, and that's to compensate the fact that if you run the car very stiff on suspension, the tire will deflect. The, the total load still goes through and is reacted by that black bit of rubber sitting on the ground. So if you made the front suspension solid, the tire would just compress to the same level as it compresses now. But you know the tire doesn't have any damping in it, so it wouldn't. It would uh, react completely differently. So suspension is there to sort of take those varying aerodynamic loads, and as I say, be as nice as possible to the tire. And you can't have you know if you have a, a chassis that's suspension is ten times the stiffness of the, of the tire rate, um, it just won't work. Or if it was half the stiffness of the tire rate, the two have to work together hand in hand, really. Now you, because you get the the downforce increases at the square of the speed. So basically, with these cars, if there was no airflow separation problems, with these cars, you know, you double the speed, you get four times the downforce. So in low medium speed corners, let's say from you know eighty k's up to you know 120, 130 um, kilometers an hour, which is quite a few corners, you have got very little downforce on the car, although it's still very valuable. But at three hundred kilometers an hour. You've got massive amounts of downforce, so this, the suspension has to be able to accommodate all that varying load um, and, and sort of try and balance it all out. And you don't want the car to be moving too quickly, so you have dampers on it to slow that down, but you have to be sympathetic to, to the tyre characteristics and, and work with what the tyre wants. And again, the, the, the geometry of the car is called the suspension, basically, the, how the loads are fed through the car. Again, you know, the camber change making sure the contact patch is maximised to suit the, the lateral forces. Um, anti-dive, so whenever you hit the brakes, that the car just doesn't dive at the front. Um, Anti-squat or, or even um, anti-lift on the rear suspension. So whenever you hit the brake pedal, you want the rear of the car to sit down and not rise up so quickly. So you have anti-lift on the back of the car. Um, you have anti-squat, so whenever you press the throttle, the, the back doesn't just squat. But it's all a compromise. If you have too much of any of this sort of stuff, the car starts to feel a bit like a, a breeze block. You know, there's no feeling coming back into the driver, and the driver can only react to the feeling of the allowing the suspension to be, have that little bit of compliance. So he can feel the car loading up and loading up and loading up, and he knows when the car is going to break away just from that load. So, big part of suspension, a big part in the, in the whole equation of, of getting the performance out of the car. But aerodynamics, it's the forces that aerodynamics create on that tire contact patch that really give you the lap time. Well, let's break it down a little bit, uh, the, the various characteristics and, and systems. Obviously, there's, there's lots of terms you were using there, and there'll be some terms people are very familiar with, some less terms. So you talk about vertical stiffness, roll stiffness, third springs, mass dampers, roll dampers, the dampers themselves. There's a vast lexicon that applies to, to different aspects of the of the suspension. So can you try and sort of break it down and how the various different components and the characteristics are supposed to work together to make the car work? Well, if you had a simple suspension, <clears throat> i.e. like your, your road car, you'd have a spring each side of it, on, the, on the, let's say the front axle. You'd have a spring each side, and you'd have a roll bar, uh, an anti-roll bar. So basically, going, you know, as, the, as the forces increased in the car, the car would s- slowly you know, go down towards the ground, 
Um, and when you go through a corner, that anti-roll bar would react, would resist the car rolling. Um, but it resi- the anti-roll bar would resist the car rolling by, you know, compressing one side a little bit and, and unloading the other side a little bit. So things have changed quite a lot. On the, on the rocker system itself, because of this increasing load with aerodynamics, you know, you run what's called a lot of rising rates. So in other words, it, you know, it might take 10 kilograms to move the car a millimetre, but then the next millimetre it will take 20 kilograms to move it. So as the force, the aerodynamic force builds up, the rising rate in the rocker means that the springs, in theory, get stiffer. And you've got then, on top of that, you've got what we call a third spring. And that connects both um, rockers together. Um, the third spring is just in a straight line. The third spring comes into play and stops the car from, again, sinking too low into the ground, whilst you can still have reasonably soft side springs on the car. So when you get into the corner, the third spring transverses, transverses laterally, so it doesn't compress anymore. It just compresses whenever the, the force is on the car, on the straight, um, and it doesn't compress anymore when you're putting cornering load into it. So all of these combinations, the bits all work in harmony together, and obviously then you have dampers on it, like your normal road car, each side to absorb damps, uh, bumps, they'll have bump and rebound characteristics, um, which can be varied. Um, you know, some have even got adjustment on them, but most of them are fixed, fixed settings basically now. Some cars now have a, a roll damper on them because when the driver turns the car in at the corner, um, it's it's that the car moving, that time from the car starting to move to to stopping moving that gives the driver confidence. If he's waiting and the car's still moving and moving and moving, you know, he can feel that in his body. It's, it's a, minute, a minute amount, but he can feel that. So he, before his confidence to plant the throttle again or do whatever, you know, he wants that to stop. So the faster you can convince him that it has stopped, the better. So separate roll damping, which is normally very, very stiff, means the car's moving very slowly. And it's just allowing the, um, allowing the driver to feel confident in it all the time. Um, and the, the the mass dampers, I mean, they've they've become vitally important because, like I was saying with the Leger, if you have if you have um, too much rebound on it, you're 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 loading and unloading tire contact patch all the time. You're changing that force that's on that tire contact patch, and the tire itself wants that force to be as consistent as possible. It doesn't like sharp changes in reaction, um, and basically the 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 mass damper, uh, it sort of is like a an inertia that's going in a certain direction and it blends it out as the suspension changes direction from compression to, to rebound. It, it sort of blends that out so that it removes the peaks and troughs, I suppose you might call it, into the tyre compound on the on the ground. So all of these things, I mean, they're all, all variables. There's a massive amount of them and to get the best out of them, if you did it blindly at a track, you would, you'd do your head in. You know, you'd be there for weeks. But to do it with data... And being able to look at the data and seeing what what's coming into play at what point in time, you know, and, and adjust it that little bit, like a third damper, a third spring, for example, on the front of the car. I mean, that's you know, adjustable in tenths of a millimeter, just to be coming in at the right time. If it's coming in just that little bit early, where you've got a two hundred and thirty, two hundred and forty kilometer corner, and it's just coming into that third damper during that period, you know, that can cause you great grief. So you want to adjust those sort of things and and try to get them all working to do the job they're there to do. And the other thing about geometry is, um, you know, whenever you imagine the car being loaded up through the through the middle of a corner, a really fast corner, 
um, and the and the wheel hits a little bump and it wants it wants to move. If your outside tire, for example, um, is maximum is loaded up to the maximum, it can't take any more, and your geometry means that the the tire contact patch wants to move out a little bit as it goes over that bump. Um, it won't do that. It'll break the tire free. It won't push the car in because the car is at its has putting the maximum force on it. But if your your geometry means it's sympathetic to the tire and and when it goes into a little bit of bump, the the tire actually moves inwards. It means that that peak load, that that spike and load going over that bump, won't upset the car. So all these little details can can add up to just getting a more balanced relationship between the aerodynamic varying load, the varying aerodynamic loads, and the tire contact patch on the ground. Because again, as I keep saying, that black bit of rubber on the ground, that's all you've got giving you this grip. You know all the rest of the stuff there, but you have to be sympathetic to it, and the tire stiffness and the car stiffness they have to work in harmony with each other a little bit so there's a lot a lot to it and of course they've got to be built in a way to take the the hammering the curbs the big load spikes etc so that's kind of the unseen element of it that we don't see suspension failures really uh anymore because of the the thorough preparation and testing they can do but I guess it's quite phenomenal the pounding a current Formula One suspension can take compared to, say, one that you had on a McLaren M26 just to, to pull a car that you worked on relatively early in your F1 career. Yeah, I mean, it's massive. The amount of equipment now the teams have, though, to to simulate all this stuff. I mean, all the data, yeah, they record all the data. That gets updated, you know, daily as it, as you get a new set of loads from a, from a different track. Um and if a, a new bump arrives, well, you know, we have seen suspension failures in a couple of places. I remember Toro Rosso, I forget which driver it was, hitting the brake pedal and both front uprights fell off. Oh, whammy in China, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's quite exciting. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they have the tools back at the factory to try and understand it. Those components will all go on rigs. They'll be che- checked to the maximum. You know, they're designed to withstand a certain load. That load will be checked to make sure the design is okay. And then they're, they're always proof tested to sort of 60, 70 or 80% of that load and, you know, be measured against deflection. So if a wishbone leg, for example, when it's brand new, um, with 80% of the load, maximum load it's ever seen on the track is put through it and that, uh, that leg deflects by, you know, 0.1 of a millimeter, it'll be tested time and time again after a certain amount of um, kilometers. Normally, as I say, a race car does about 750 kilometers a weekend. So after 750 kilometers, those bits will all come off, be reproof tested. And if that's now moving 0.2 of a millimeter, somebody will be looking for why it's, you know, it's not as stiff as it was. Um, so the, the tools you have away from the circuit now are, are fantastic. And the amount of data you gather now is fantastic to, to try and stop um, these sort of failures happening at the track. I could hear in the background your dog definitely trying to break into what you were saying there, haven't they? Disagreeing with, uh, disagreeing with something. Uh, well, yes, he probably she probably is, but uh, yeah, she likes aeroplanes. Luckily, at the moment, there's not too many aeroplanes in the sky. But when she does see one, she she recognises the vapour trails and goes berserk and chases it down the garden. But you've never had a plane land in your garden, though. So guard dog success. It's a good guard dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, she's quite funny with helicopters though. They come over over sometimes quite low. Um, she's just coming in to say hello. Hi, Donny. How you doing? Are you all right? You be quiet now. Well, yeah, so. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff, you have to get it all working together and working at the right time. It's all there for, for you know, lots and lots of logical reasons. Um, but it's all about trying to take that aerodynamic force that you're creating by the, 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 the car 
aerodynamically you're trying to make that fairly consistent so there's no big bump spikes and, and whatever in it um, and you just try and to transmit that through onto that black bit of rubber and, and make sure you get the best out of it. Well let's talk a bit more about aerodynamic uh, compromises because not only are all the suspension members positioned and shrouded for aero reasons obviously they'll always try and get them aligned and you'll often see the, the sort of the cowlings around them obviously Formula One teams have been doing things with suspension like this for well over 20 years back in the 90s we started to see people uh, people doing this and there's also the added problem of they'll always want to hold the car in quite a narrow window ride wise to make sure the aero works well plus the added complication of if you're running a lot of rake to have it in the right attitude at different times so there's a multitude of aero reasons why the suspension is is compromised so how does that how does that work james allison always says they try and keep the same stiffness and kinematic characteristics of the suspension when they do make changes for aero loads but is that doable or is there always some kind of trade-off when you do this well there always has to be a compromise i mean the, the positioning of wishbones for example are, are they are positioned primarily for aerodynamic reasons but you, you have a you have to be very careful because obviously front wishbone if you if you take for example the bottom wishbone the more you lift it up which every team has now the higher the loads are in it so you've got to be very careful and make sure you can resolve those forces and by resolving those forces you make it heavier than what it could be but then you have to look at all that stuff and say okay um is the aerodynamic force change going to be better for me than than all this other stuff and mercedes has done quite a novel idea on the on the rear suspension of their car for this year 2020 but they haven't got racing it yet um you know they've, they've changed the sort of location of the bottom wishbone on the rear suspension so they got try to get rid of the front leg of it um, because the front leg goes sort of forward onto the onto where the engine and gearbox meet up the bell housing um, and it has a quite a big influence on the airflow through between and the coke bottle between the uh, the the inside of the rear tire and the coke bottle bodywork as such and that has a quite a big influence on it um, you're allowed to change the leg profile um, it's got what they call a three and a half to one aspect ratio, so it can um, it has to be can only be three and a half times the length of its thickness, um, and also plus or minus a certain angle, three degrees, I think it is. So you know you can, only a certain amount you can do with it. So getting it out of the way completely and allowing more airflow through there is quite a valuable thing. But it does change the loads and all the bits of the car, so you have to you have to be able to accommodate that and make sure things aren't moving around more. Um, because that will obviously lose your stiffness and you need to transfer these loads through into the tyre without everything moving around unknowingly to you. So um, you, you would only take the route aerodynamically to get a benefit out of it as long as you didn't overcompromise everything else. And, and you know, if you added on 10 kilograms, for example, to the two lower rear wishbones because you did this, that would be a bad trade-off. Um, unless you're 10 kilograms within the weight limit that you you know could use up, and, and we know Formula One cars are getting far too heavy, so that, so they don't have that. So you have to you have to make sure you get your trade offs right. We should also talk about the tyres as well. You've touched on on this topic, but obviously tyres are also part of the suspension. How significant can they be in terms of the variation in the stiffness, the impact on the way you operate and design the suspension, and how do you go about? learning to get the best out of them both over one lap and managing degradation in the race and of course just how different can different tyres be obviously in your time in F1 you used all sorts of different suppliers and sometimes people do talk about kind of family and DNA carrying through certain tyre brands uh, over a period so 
how how big are the variations in this challenge uh, as you go from tire company to tire company and type of tire to type of tire? Um, it's very different. You know, we started whenever I started my Formula One career with with Jordan um, in the nineties or designing the cars in Formula One. Um, you know, we had Goodyear tires, <clears throat> and that's all we ever knew, really, to be honest. And interesting things like we used them in nineteen ninety seven in uh, in Canada. Everybody was having problems with blistering the rear tires, the the inside shoulder of the rear tires. And again, you know, Goodyear wanted to put up the pressures and take the camber off and all that sort of stuff, which all hurts the the tire grip. They never forced it upon us, so you know, no team's going to do that. But after a bit of lateral thinking, uh, I had a chat with one of the Goodyear engineers, and we came up with this solution where they had this. Um, you know, sort of torque steer built into the, the way that the construction of the tire the tire was. So the, the tire itself um, tries to go in a certain direction, and because of Goodyear's sort of IndyCar experience, the on oval tracks, the, the the tire was trying to steer itself into the centre of the car. And I got them to um, to put a set of our tires on the on the car, much against their against what they wanted to do, but to put them on the other way around so the tires tire. tire was to steer itself outwards rather than inwards, the tendency of the tyre. And uh, lo and behold, the next day, um, we had no blistering. So that was a very good solution, unfortunately. Um, Goodyear went and told all the other teams, so everybody between practice and qualifying was getting their tyres changed the, other, the opposite direction just to, to try and stop this blistering problem. Um, so tyres will always be very different. Then we went to the Bridgestones and you know worked with them for, for many years, and they were... You know they were they were very different in the fact that they were they were a tire that the tire could grain um, quite dramatically, but it would clean up again. Um, so you just needed to be gentle with it a little bit and look after it, and, and the tire would clean up again. Michelin tires they were very good at making a tire that was super fast in one lap, and then would be more durable for the race. And their tires were very, a lot heavier than the Bridgestone tires. They had a very strong, stiff belt. As such, the tread belt was very flat, um, and sidewalls were were very different, uh, very soft. Um, and then you you go on to the Pirelli tires. Now we've seen, if you look, you know that's the most visual we've ever seen really of tires deflecting whenever they go for curbs, and um, you see them laterally bouncing around, you know, quite dramatically. And that is just the stiffness of the tire again. Um, I think that, that probably the the Pirelli is the the tire that's got the, the weakest shoulder the bit between the tread and the and the sidewall seems to be an area where it moves quite a lot the new tires for 2020 were supposed to accommodate that and make it better but that was voted down as not being you know a positive thing um so they're, con- they're continuing with the, the 19 2019 tires um but you know you've got what you've got as far as the tire is concerned there's a set of characteristics the tire has which is a lateral stiffness and a vertical stiffness and then you can vary that with tire pressures and you've got to just make sure you accommodate that within within your car setup to make sure that the two work in harmony. You can't have one right at one end of the scale and the other one at the other end of the scale. You know, in the days of, of the Michelin tires and the Bridgestone tires, you could take a, a Bridgestone car setup, mechanical setup, put a set of Michelin tires on it, and, and it would be okay. You know, then you'd optimize it by changing a few little bits and pieces, but you wouldn't have to go stupid with the setup changes. It would it would it would be okay. It just needs to be tidied up a little bit, I suppose. 
And how much of a difference would it make if we had actually had tyre competition in F1, particularly when it comes to how you work on a suspension, especially if you're in a position of being, should we say, one of the frontline teams for, for a tyre supplier, which always happens, you'd actually be able to drive the developments of the of the tyre to suit what you wanted as well? It'd be a very difficult thing. I mean, I think Pirelli's brief is that they're a, they're a one supplier, you know, they're a single supplier. If they were, if their brief was different and that suddenly another tyre supplier would was going to come in, then Pirelli would have the opening and opportunity to build a better tyre. But, you know, the way they look at it is it doesn't have to be. I think a, a, a tyre a tire competition is, is ultra expensive, um, obviously because, you know, you're never really always on the right one um, because it will change during time. And we saw that with Bridgestone and Michelin. Um, but it does add a bit of an interest to it. and It doesn't mean that competition is... Is pushed to the limit of of um, you know reacting because tires they can react quite quickly. I mean, with Pirelli right now, they ship their tires to Australia three months before the race was supposed to be. So, but that's not the way it used to be. Whenever it was Bridgestone and Michelin, it would be fly the tires there at the last minute, just straight out of the moulds as such. So, it would it would enormously increase costs, which I don't think anybody needs at the moment for sure. But it would be interesting to see. If if there's a different way of using the Pirelli tires, I suppose, and that you know it was just open to the teams to take whatever they wanted of the five slick compounds that Pirelli have, um, you know, and the pit stops weren't dictated. You didn't have to use them. You know, someone different to allow the teams to use those five tires as potentially different competition levels, and maybe even you know the the, the big teams at the front, or depending upon how many points you've got. You know they have to use the they they choose out of that five they can only choose the three top the three hard compounds or whatever you know some way to actually try and create a little bit of tire competition within a set of regulations that doesn't you know increase ex- expense uh, so dramatically. And just kind of as a as a final question, the, the whole suspension, the mechanical side of things has not necessarily been marginalised, but it's become less important uh, over the years. Do you think if you were still an F1 technical director or you were working on the mechanical side, it would frustrate you the way Formula 1 is now? In that, Although, cause although obviously you, you worked on the aero with, with Jordan, so you've got a good understanding of that, you also have always sort of stressed that need to, to work on the mechanical side. And when you started in Formula 1, it wasn't so many years into the into the aero era uh, that, that you started as well. So you've, you've been there sort of right from relatively early in in that transition um i don't think it would frustrate me i think i would put still a a huge amount of effort into it Uh, you know if you look at um red bull with its um sort of multi-link front suspension to change the camber the camber change um what was steering lock uh if you look at the the das system mercedes brought up um if you look at at the i don't know some other teams, I suppose they've 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 got it really got it wrong in the, the fact that geometry is a bit too biased towards aerodynamics. Then I think you know the compromises aren't always there, but the top teams are trying very hard to actually accommodate both aerodynamically and mechanically, make sure that the tire is looked after as best possible. And I think that you know we get a lot of criticism of Pirelli from the drivers for the tires degrading and all that sort of stuff. You know, to make a tire that's very good for that one lap and to go on and do a you know twenty lap stint or whatever at a Grand Prix, it's not an easy task by any means. 
Um, and there always will be sort of compromises in driving it, but how far, hard you can push all the time. But I think to do it and, and make it work as a team, you if you if you look after the geometry of the car, the tire characteristic, the tire load change, and the aerodynamic package, and you take it all as one, then I think you can you'll end up with a better car. So if I was still involved in Formula One, I'd just be putting in as as much of an effort into that um, as I could. And, and interestingly, you know, that you would talk about the Red Bull Multi-Link. We looked for our '97 car. It was one of the things we pushed very hard on the. The, the kingpin caster change or steering lock um, to try and optimize this contact patch. And we actually looked at a multi-link top uh, wishbone that would allow it to change the camber whenever you put more lock on it. So, you know, it's, nothing's new. Uh, it's always there. And the, and the requirements have always been the same. You just need to sort of get on and do it. And we didn't do it at that point in time because we didn't have the confidence that we could sort of engineer our way through it all. Because it was it was quite complicated. Um, now it's a slightly different deal. I, I would be I would be doing that tomorrow if I was involved in the team. But it would all be for suspension geometry. It would all be for the fact that you could have as much camber on the car as you wanted in the high speed corners, and a lot less on it uh, in low speed corners. And that would be the way of achieving it. And, you know, Red Bull are doing that now. Well, our, our time is uh, drawing to a close. Hopefully, we've been able to scratch the surface a little bit of the uh, the challenges of suspension in Formula One. I know it's a topic that Gary could uh, talk about uh, almost endlessly, such as the uh, the depth of expertise. But hopefully, you've come out of this podcast with a little bit more understanding of uh, of how that is working. Uh, do please subscribe to the Gary Anderson F1 Show if you haven't already, and head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads of writing there from Gary Anderson, the rest of our F1 team, and also on writing on all manner of other uh, categories, esports in particular which is the main thing uh, going on at the moment so thanks very much Gary Anderson and thanks for listening we'll be back soon with another episode